0: Well, we're going to get into the ministry of angels, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1 in just a moment, but before we start, why don't we talk to God and ask for His involvement here in our minds. Pray with me, please. God, it is good for us to think about things that uh, are eternally true and things that are eternal. As you said, the things we can't see are the things that last, and so I pray as we focus our attention and shift our minds from whatever it was that we were dealing with today to think about these uh, Beings that were created to glorify you, to bring glory to you, and in a particular way in serving us—that's uh, a great and, and mind-blowing thought. But I pray tonight, as we get a better grasp on that, maybe think through uh, what we can think through, and within the parameters of Scripture regarding these beings, that we would come away uh, encouraged and, uh, and, and uplifted and, and blessed just by the fact that you care so much about us. Uh, to have a whole army, a whole host of beings that are ready. Uh, To serve us. They've been dispatched to do that, and we want to get excited just about your love and your provision and your care in our lives in that way. God, we know everything doesn't work out in our immaturity the way that we would want in our lives, but we know that you are uh, working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we want to celebrate that knowing that a lot of the things that take place in our lives, even Daniel's exile, I think about that, sitting there by the river, dealing with the problems of captivity and imprisonment and the grief of... of Jerusalem being uh, overtaken by a foreign army, all of those things leading to some of the most specific and exacting prophecies delivered through angelic beings about the coming of Messiah, the 70 Weeks Prophecy, so many others about Medo-Persia and Greece and the coming Roman Empire and all the things that you did to validate your word all because uh, you cared about the nation, you cared about Daniel, you cared about the people that you were calling out, plucking out from the world and redeeming for your own possession. And so, God, we want to celebrate even the left turns in life, even when we think that, uh, as we think about your provision and your care and your protection, that you could do a lot more uh, on our want list, but really in the big picture. We know you're caring for us with a kind of wisdom that's far above ours. Your thoughts are definitely far above ours, and your plans are much better than we could ever conceive. So mature us even in that thought, God, knowing that you could change circumstances in a lot of ways, but You choose and design our lives in such a way as to bring maximum glory to You. So give us a a sense of that providence in our lives tonight, and let us celebrate and respect and even admire uh, these beings that are dispatched to help us and to provide for us just exactly what we need to bring glory to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to talk about that. Our first Subject will be derived from all that we can get at least out of that little verse there, the last verse of Hebrews chapter 1. So turn there if you haven't already and let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. And as you scan through this, of course, there was so much uh, in the mind of the Jewish person. Uh, considering the claims of Christ that exalted in His mind the role of angelic beings. And, of course, the argument of chapter 1 and even into chapter 2 is that Christ is far superior to any created angel. That's how it starts. Verse 3, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Uh, He goes through all of these Old Testament quotes about angels. He wraps it up in verse 13. Of which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Of course, he hasn't. That's a rhetorical question. He's only said that to uh, his son, the monogamous, the unique one and only uh, son of God. And so then he ends with this very clear and simple statement. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is a broadly stated verse. Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1, and we want to think it through, at least three of the main phrases here that should bring some sense of, of, of definition to what these angelic beings are all about. Are they not all ministering spirits? Uh, so many of these Greek words are important, uh, and I didn't take time to break these down on your worksheet or on the overhead, but I've told you there's two different words for minister in the Bible. One we get the word liturgical from, and the other one we get the word deacon from. Both of these are used in the text. They serve in a liturgical sense as, as beings giving glory to God through their uh, diakona, their their service to the people of God. Uh, but the first thing we should focus on is the phrase sent out. That's interesting and important. We see them often in our minds as surrounding the presence of God, whatever that is like, this unapproachable light, this God who dwells in some transcendent glory, and certainly the visions have them there. But this text says that they are sent out, and, and that means that they are for us and from our perspective. They are very present, and, and because they are finite beings, being that they are localized, they have to have a focalized presence, this is an interesting and very helpful picture for us, that they are among us. They are, as Ron Rhodes says, they are among us. They are with us. Now, perhaps not all the time, individually, because even as Christ said, the ones that trust in Him, these little ones, they behold the face of God, and they are in our presence. They're among us. And that is... um, I suppose, a helpful reminder that it's not just some indefinable, omnipresent Spirit of God, which I don't mean to say it in some minimized way. That's far more important than we could ever comprehend. But then to think finitely, because we're so finite, about the presence, the localized, focalized presence of beings that have been sent out from God's presence to be here in time and space uh, ministering among us sent out. They are present. They are not distant. If they are distant, they're distant for a time. Their job is uh, to be sent out. Now, here's the word here, to serve. Uh, The the word we get the word deacon from. That's probably the broadest word we could possibly use to describe uh, somebody doing something for the benefit of someone else. It is uh, the word from Acts chapter 6, where God had created in the wisdom of the apostles, this level of people within the church who were not spending their time in prayer and Bible study to the extent and the exclusive focus on those things for the sake of teaching and leading. These were the, uh, the diakonos, the servants among that would do all kinds of things among the people of the church to, to meet the practical needs, whatever those practical needs might be. A more narrow word is the first word, ministering spirits. They are in the presence of God, bringing glory to God through some specific task. And the specific task is they're giving general help or general service uh, to those who will inherit salvation, uh, which, of course, is us. And I guess I should sidebar that for a minute because there may be some who say, well, that means uh, pre-Christian people. That's not what it means. You do understand that there are three... Uh, perspectives, I should say, uh, tenses of salvation. In one sense, you were in time saved, right, judicially, trans- in a transactional way when Christ paid the penalty on the cross. He said it is finished. That's salvation passed, and it was done for you. And then in present, in time and space, when you heard the message of the gospel and God worked in you repentance and faith, you can say you're presently saved. And in some way we say, well, before I was a Christian, I wasn't saved. And now as a Christian, I was saved. So in the cross, past salvation, in the present, I've become a Christian, I am saved. But the perspective here is a future tense to inherit salvation because salvation is not fully realized until I'm actually saved. See, we say saved, the payment was made. We say saved, I am now forensically in the family saved, but then salvation is yet to come. Why? Because the wrath of God hasn't been spent yet. It's not been spent on the world. I will know that my past salvation of the spent wrath of God on the cross was actually effectual in my life in space and time on earth when I'm now standing in the presence of God. And He says to me, enter into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world, while the rest are told you're now going to have to be judged on everything you've ever done that is wrong to now have some kind of appropriate judgment on your life. That is the actual salvation that frees us from penalty and lets us inherit some kind of blessing and, and reward in the kingdom, past, present, and future salvation. We are those who are ministered to by angels because we will, as the last phrase says, inherit salvation. Now, what are they doing? It's the broadest word possible. All kinds of things, and we'll look at those tonight from various texts and passages of the Scripture. One little Greek word that's translated for English words, for the sake of, uh, is helpful too because we know that these elect angels are sent uh, for our, our good. They're sent for our benefit. Even the discipline that they might somehow. Uh, be, be the, the uh, executors of, that's a tough word, uh, that they might in some way realize or apply in our lives, all of it is for good. God is the source of it all. His agency sometimes is through angelic beings, but whatever it is, it's for good. And we'll look at some examples of that in the Bible throughout the text uh, of, of Scripture of how they've done that. Sent out, they're in our presence, um, back and forth, I suppose, from our presence to God's presence to serve, to give all kinds of of service. I should make another distinction with that. It is said of God and His Spirit that He serves us, but the distinctions throughout the New Testament on the ministry of the Holy Spirit is usually on a much more profound level. That's why the spatial words in is, is used, that spatial word, that preposition. The Spirit is ministering in us. His conviction is in us right? His, his, the grieving of the Spirit, is my Spirit grieving His? The, the affirmation that I'm a child of God, Romans chapter 8, is in me? Uh, angels, we have, in, just in terms of grammar, a more external description of their ministry. The short way to say that is what kind of service do they give? At least the pattern in the Bible is this. They bring a kind of external service to our lives. God Himself, the third person of the Holy Spirit, uh, gives whatever internal ministry to our lives on a daily basis. Uh, at least that's a distinction that's safe to make in the pattern that's made throughout the New Testament regarding angelic service. For the sake of, for our good, that's good to know. We've got people on our side, all around us, all the time, even when we feel outnumbered uh, and, and, and opposed or whatever it might be in temptation or in opposition uh, or just in a world that is it seems like increasingly and exponentially so calling the right things wrong and the wrong things right every single day uh, we're we 're surrounded by elect angels that know what holiness is all about on a level we 've yet to experience that 's as broadly uh, stated as the Bible puts it, and unfortunately it 's not much more specific other than by example uh, but while we 're in hebrews let 's turn to Hebrews chapter thirteen, and let me make a statement here about what seems to be normative there's a lot that takes place in redemptive history from genesis to revelation where god is breaking the rules that he made and and i preached an entire 60 minutes on this particular topic when i was working through first corinthians 14 some of you've heard that sermon god breaks the rules that he makes for some very significant revelatory salvific and revelatory reasons throughout the bible They come in rashes throughout the text with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Christ and the apostles. Normative functioning within the Bible does not see God intruding on the laws that He made or suspending the laws that He's made. Uh, What we have throughout the Scripture normally is uh, things working within the sphere that they should and we already got a hint in verse 14 of of Hebrews chapter 1 that the sphere in which the the angels minister is they are spirit, right? And have some contact on humanity, but their their ontological makeup, their who they are by definition is spirit and they retain that function. At least that seems to be the case. Now there are exceptions. And uh this is certainly an interesting passage that I think is worth taking a look at and and one thing we do see in this, that even if there is something that, be, that goes beyond the normal rules of how angelic beings function and exist and how human beings function and exist, in this text there seems to be a sense of it's, it's surreptitious, it's, it's, it's secret, it's unknown, it's disguised, it's undiscernible, okay? Uh, maybe not the effect, as we'll see. We'll build a pattern as we go through these texts, but it seems to be that their ministry is usually secretly accomplished. Okay? Let's read the text. Let's start with verse 1. It's so short. Let brotherly love continue. Okay? Uh, do n- do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's an interesting, provocative verse. Uh, let's define a few things here. The first thing to define is, and the question should always be asked, what do we mean by angels? Could it be that if this whole text is a motivation for me to show hospitality, that what's actually happened is that someone has ministered to me in my showing of hospitality and trying to minister to them, but that person that ministered to me was really not an angel in disguise, but it was a human being. I mentioned a few examples of this uh, I think just briefly, you might remember in Revelation 2 and 3, seven examples of angelos being used for a human being. At least that appears to be the case. The pastor is called the angelos. Well, there's several others. The apostles are called the angelos, the angels, in the Gospels. John the Baptist is, is, is traditionally quoted from the text in Malachi as, as the angel, the messenger of God. Um, several other examples, Jesus Himself uh, described at least in his function that way. So the word angel we can't say 100% of the time is representing one of these spirit beings that's sent out to minister to people to inherit salvation. I do think that probably is what's going on in this text, but at least we should ask the question uh, because the passage would still work in that God ministered to us when I showed hospitality. But that's the word we also need to look at, Hospitality. The play on words not visible in English, but it's, it's so obvious in Greek. Phileo is, is one of the Greek words, as you know, for love. At least I hope you know. Agape is often, often used. Phileo is often used. Phileo can be translated love. Well, in this text, xena or xenos, we might know that word, is, is a stranger, uh, not an insider, okay? To, to love uh, an outsider, phileo, xena, is to be open to bringing outsiders in. Someone who's not in my circle, I'm letting them in my circle. And then you can see why it often takes the meaning of someone's opening up their home to an outsider because my home is for my family. It's not for, you know, you. (laughs) It's for my family. Uh, But when I show hospitality, I'm letting an outsider, someone who's not in my biological family, into my domain, uh, which is usually reserved for someone else. In verse number one, here's the play on words. Uh, he's commanding, first of all, Phileo Delphia, Philadelphia. Let that menos, let it remain. Philadelphia means love the brothers, okay? And that would be in, in triggering in anybody's mind in the first century, certainly to a letter from an apostle to a church, it would mean you need to be within your church family, you need to be embracing, loving, accepting, being affectionate toward, and inclusive of your brothers and sisters in Christ at your church. The next verse says now, playing on phileo as the root, phileo Zena. Now, you should show that kind of inclusion to those that aren't in your church, who aren't the normal people you run with all the time. You need to show that kind of acceptance to outsiders. Let the outsiders in. Now, if I got someone in my life and I don't really know who they are, I got someone in my I have someone that I meet in my life that is not in my life, and I show some kind of hospitality to them, which, of course, in the first century without any holiday inns or any Marriott's or Hilton's, I mean, it was a normal thing that if you were going to show hospitality perhaps to a traveler, you would open up your home for them. This is an interesting command because the text says that that person that you open up your life to, your home to, your resources to, your dinner table to, could be someone that is a messenger. Is it that they're a messenger of God's blessing to me because the human being is ministering to me when I attempted to minister to them? Or is it seemingly, as the grammar would suggest, that I didn't know that they were a messenger. Now, if they blessed me, I would know that, right? I wouldn't be unaware of the fact that they would be a messenger of blessing to me in some way. So, it does seem, at least to recommend in this text, though the grammar is not as strong as it seems in English, it's not a perfect tense or a past tense, it's an aorist tense, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's more of the fuzzy tense of, 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 of action. Uh, but the point is this, it seems to be that what I wouldn't know is what kind of person you really were. That you were in ministering to me, not a human being, but an angelos. If that's how we're to understand this text, it is a provocative way to say that the angels that are sent to minister to us are somehow, right, being knocking into our lives in some way, someone I didn't know, who brings some kind of good into my life. I'm one who inherits salvation, they're bringing good, they're for my benefit, and I didn't even know that they weren't a genuine person. I can't say 100% that's what this text is all about, but if the whole point is you'll do it unawares, that means I wouldn't, wouldn't have known it. God sent someone to me to minister to good, to minister good in my life, and, and I had no clue that it was an angel. Is that going to be revelatory to us when we get to heaven and look back on our lives? Perhaps. It's an interesting verse. But either way, unawares is the point that it seems to be unnoticed at the time. Okay, well, if that's the case, let's look through the Bible and see how they've ministered. And as we understand how they've ministered, perhaps we'll try and understand better this interface between their existence in ministry and our lives. How have they ministered? Here's how they've ministered. They've helped people win the lotto. Uh, No, you see, that's not, I mean, that's what the popular books will say. Uh, They do things like this. They help in orchestrating evangelism, okay? I just want to look for patterns in the Bible. When do angels show up and how do they minister to the people of God? How do they minister to the people that are going to inherit salvation? Well, they orchestrate evangelism. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. We'll get a little context here. Actually, we'll start with verse 26 and read on from there. Now, remember what I told you when we we went through the angel of the Lord lecture. Remember that? Angel of the Lord only appears in the Old Testament, and by that I mean the angel of the Lord. In the New Testament, all we have is an anarthrus or a non-definite article in front of, you know, no definite article in front of angels, so it's always an angel of the Lord, with one exception when it's talking about a particular one who ministered and, and revealed things to Joseph. But here it says the same thing. Here it is, an angel of the Lord. We're not talking about the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament. Don't get confused on that, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, to Gaza. That is a desert place, which makes no sense uh, based on all the ministry that was going on in this chapter. Actually, Philip shows up in the beginning of this chapter, verse 4 there's all kind of ministry, go- all kinds of ministry going on, all kinds of evangelism going on. Little interlude there with Simon the magician, and then Philip is called to go down uh, this road to the south toward Gaza, toward Hebron, a desert place. Uh, he rose and went, which was a very unlikely place to go. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, I know there's an Ethiopia today in Africa, but actually, ancient Ethiopia was really modern Sudan. Uh, so, it's, it's southern ancient Egypt, which is the Sudan. They called it Ethiopia. And he was a eunuch. I don't need to explain that to you. Ouch. A court official, uh, I'm sorry, of, of, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, because that's what they did, right? If you're going to attend to the queen, uh, then, you know, we don't want you hitting on the queen, so we got a solution for that, they said. Uh, it's called being a eunuch. All right. Well, whatever. But he's an important guy. He's in charge of all of her treasure. And he, came, he comes to Jerusalem to worship. Now, there's an interesting thing. We've got this, uh, this, this Ethiopian coming up to worship, this Egyptian. And he was returning. he was in, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, talk about an opportune evangelistic opportunity, right? You, you, get, you get directed by this angel to go to this place that's very unlikely, and you run into a guy who's reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asks Philip, do you understand? I'm sorry. Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone guides me? doesn't get any better than that. You go walk into the lunchroom. He's reading Isaiah. Will you understand what you're reading. I don't. I need somebody to tell me. Okay, have a nice lunch and walk away. No, this is a great evangelistic time for you to talk about about Christ. Now, he's reading the passage of Scripture. Here's what he was reading, verse 32. Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Now, he could have been reading Zechariah. He could have been reading Leviticus. Uh, He's reading a classic messianic text in Isaiah 53. Like sheep, like a, like a sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I mean, if you want a teed-up ball for evangelism right there, that's it. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. A couple observations in the text angelic intervention, which was in this case someone telling him, and that someone was from God, redirecting his day to a different place that he wasn't planning on going. It was an unexpected place. And even that word to the south, exact same Greek phrase can be translated uh, at noon, which is complicated, I know, but none of the, neither of them makes sense. If he's going to go down to the road to Hebron or Gaza, that's a bad direction. If it's at noon, that's even worse. There's nobody traveling at noon on those dusty roads. And so he is in an unexpected place at an unexpected time, redirected to a very strategic person. If you know anything about Egyptian Christianity, we're reading a lot about it in the news these days, uh, and all the attacks on the Coptic Christians which is still, what, 4%, I think, of the Egyptian population. This is how it all started, right? The gospel gets right out of the gate by the eighth chapter of Acts, deep into Egypt. That's, that's amazing. A uh, strategic person in a powerful position in the queen's court. And out of that started a big Christian movement today. And if you go with us to Israel uh, in June... Uh, you'll still see all over Jerusalem uh, the presence of the Coptic church, even in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, uh, Coptic Christians there. And, and they're very distinctive, and you'll see them, and you'll go, wow. Uh, and, and they will tell you, uh, if you can find one that can speak English to you, they will tell you, uh, you. know, They'll talk about this guy, this passage, Philip, and this situation, and it all started with a messenger from God redirecting Philip's day to a different place. All I'm saying here, if we want to piece this together, and I'm not trying to get mystical or weird, but if there are situations where God is redirecting your day through some whatever, some person, some thing, some call, some business call, whatever it might be, and it directs you to an evangelistic opportunity, that is the kind of thing that angels are doing in the Bible. That's what they're involved with. Let's look at another example, Acts chapter 10, because we're close. Caesarea, verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion who was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And at about the ninth hour of the day, he, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. And bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and the angel who spoke to him, when the angel who spoke to him departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them on to Joppa. Now, if you know Acts ten, God has to prepare Peter to have any of this contact with with an Italian soldier of all people. And we get an Italian soldier and a Jewish, you know, fisherman turned disciple to connect in a a situation because of an angelic. In this case, it says uh, he sees sees clearly in a vision uh, an angel of God. Something happens here where God dispatches an angel to take a guy who would become critical in bringing the gospel to the west, and he does it two chapters after bringing the gospel to the south, and it's all done because the angelic intervention sent out to lead this guy to... Peter, to be saved, and that's exactly what happens. Drop down to verse 22. I mean, as he recaps all of this, I mean, is it's more than a vision? I don't know. Verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, upright, God-fearing man, as they report on this, who's well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house uh, and to hear what you have to say. Angel involved in what? The thing that God's concerned with, evangelism. Directing an Italian soldier to a Jewish Peter Peter then prepped by God to meet Him. Another example, I could give you a couple others, but in the Scripture, what I think we ought to say and recognize is that that angels are concerned with what God's concerned with and what they're dispatched to do is to advance the kingdom. At least that's one of the ways that they minister in orchestrating evangelistic uh, encounters. So, I just want to say this to you and me tonight, you should take evangelistic cues seriously. It may be where heaven and earth are intersecting in your life, and there are what we like to call one of the first sermons I ever preached. I remember way back in the day, I called, I called it, it's not even recorded, praise God for that. Uh, it was called God's Divine Appointments. And I remember preaching through Acts here to a bunch of college students about God's divine appointments without ever making this connection that I make now in angelology, that the angels are involved in that. And those divine appointments are sometimes orchestrated with perhaps, as we'll look back from heaven's perspective, some divine angelic markers to direct us to evangelism. So, next time you find yourself in a situation where the door is open for the gospel, you need to look at that and go, wow, God is concerned with me sharing the gospel, and perhaps some of the key players in getting me to this place were angelic messengers in one way or another giving me an opportunity to advance the gospel even further. Letter B, supplying necessary provisions. Supplying necessary provisions. I guess I should add to all of these subpoints. I guess you could do this, doing all of these things, and you might want to put this in parentheses, when no one else would, okay, or no one else could in the case of directing Philip to go and, and take a dusty road south to nowhere, it'd be like you, you know, I don't know, t- taking a trip down a road you would never, ever go down. It, it, no one would tell Philip to go there. No one would tell, tell Philip to go there because no one would know that a key guy who's going to be powerful and winning Egyptians to Christ are, is there and would never know that he would be reading Isaiah. So, the angelic beings would know that, and they were then in that position to do it. And you could say the same thing here, supplying necessary provisions. Now, in our urban life or suburban life, that may not be a situation that, you know, we'd find ourselves in very often. But in this kind of setting, geographically and historically, we find in the Bible, angelic beings providing necessary provisions when no one else would or no one else could uh, let's look at our first example back in Genesis 21. We've encountered this before as we looked at some of our word studies on angels. But let's look at the text here and think through what this angel is actually doing here with Hagar and Ishmael. Genesis chapter 21, starting verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. What's going on here? All right? Been been driven out. Sarah can't handle it. Bad plan to start with having kids with your you know maid. All of this was. You know, at least humanly speaking, a, a mess. So off they go. The boy's crying. They're going to die. They don't have anything to eat. They have no provision. They have no water. And an angel of God called Hagar from heaven. This is verse 17. And said to her, What troubles you? Duh. I mean, you know, sometimes it's just to clarify our needs, right? Give us clearly what, what, what's going on. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy. Where is he? Lift up, up. I'm sorry, verse 18. Up, lift up the boy. And hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy to drink. And God was with the boy. He grew up, he lived in the wilderness, and he became an expert with the bow. This example of an angel in this text is an angel providing sustenance for Hagar and Ishmael, because otherwise there was no one else to do it, and there was nobody else who could do it. And so there was a provision, a direction, some leading to a source of sustenance so that this boy could live and God could carry on His plan, which in many ways ended up pitting two nations against each other. Okay? Clear. Water. Need water? You can't live without water. Let's go to First Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. And you could see, by the way, in a different setting, when you're not in the wilderness without a well and without water, you could still have the kind of intervention that God can, gives. God can give through angelic beings to open up opportunities to provide resources, even though they may be plentifully supplied in a suburban setting. There still needs to be means to buy them, means to get them, the ability to provide sustenance when there's absolutely no other way to have it done. 1 Kings 19, this is Elijah. You remember the story, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and she didn't like it, (laughs) and how she'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So you've got 24 hours to live. Very powerful, evil woman uh, is after the life of the prophet Elijah. Then he was afraid. Even the godly leaders of Israel have feet of clay. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went about a day's journey into the wilderness. He's running far away as he can possibly get. He came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. That happens too. Some of the leaders want to die. Um, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under the broom tree, he wanted God to take his life. And behold, an angel touched him, hey, buddy, and said to him, get up and eat, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. I mean, that spells hamburger, fries, and a Coke, right? I mean, that's the ancient fast food. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel said, hey, buddy, uh, Come on. Second time, the angel of the Lord touched him and said, Wake up, arise, and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose, and he ate, and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, the horror of the mount of God. Interesting story in this text. you got a guy who's running, wants to die, sits under a tree. God's not done with him yet. God sends a messenger to keep him alive, and Elijah survives. Uh, Here's provision that wouldn't otherwise be supplied as he ran himself uh, deep into the desert to die. Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. You remember this text? This is the, Matthew's account of the temptation of Christ in the desert. Now, again, it's not the only temptation he faced, as Hebrews points out, but it's the classic showdown at the beginning of his ministry. He's led by the Spirit, verse 1, into the wilderness to be tempted. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and the understatement of Matthew 4, he was hungry. Makes sense. And the tempter came and said, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And you know this. There's so much to preach here. But he goes on and on and on. Drop down uh, to verse 9. He said, all these things I will give you, you fall down and worship me. The Lord said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The assumption here in this text, a lot like the Old Testament examples that I've showed you, is that there is some kind of provision given to Christ through messengers that come to give him what he needs. After the fasting is over, after the the showdown is over with, with Satan, after this very symbolic and representative temptation is conquered, here he gets food in the desert through the angelic hosts. Jesus survives. I guess you need to see this in situations which we don't find ourselves in perhaps when it comes to the sustenance of life, but even though they may be three or four steps removed and you know, am I going to die if this doesn't happen? We ought to as we think about the, at least the recorded pattern of ministry of angelic beings that God is using heaven's messengers to provide avenues of provision, and when you see avenues of provision, you ought to be thankful to God for them. We don't freak out, our head doesn't spin around, we don't get all mystical and all that, but we say, wow, when there was someone, some person, some intervention, uh, some direction that I didn't otherwise have on the agenda or on my my GPS for the day, if God gets it done, we should look back and say, angelic beings, certainly at least in pattern and by example, are involved in that business in our lives to get us what we need to survive God wasn't done with Ishmael yet God wasn't done with Elijah yet God certainly wasn't done with the with the biological life of Christ, and he supplied what was needed for that life to continue. Let her see Lot said on this in the scripture that angelic beings in the Bible are dispatched to protect us from danger real basic danger in several circumstances but let's look at the most emphatic promise of the Bible from psalm ninety one Uh, 11, and I won't make you turn there. I put it up here on the screen for you. Psalm 91, 11 through 13, for he will command his angels concerning you. This, by the way, is a response to if we've made the most high our refuge, if we trust in him, then his response is to care for us, and his response is through the agency in physical care, the agency of angelic beings. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone, which, by the way, is a passage that Satan quoted to Christ, you might remember in the temptation. Uh, Or, And you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. If you are one who puts his trust in God, then the situations of danger that may present themselves, if God wants you to thrive and move forward without that danger, His agency in this text is angelic beings to make that happen doesn't have to use them. Obviously, he's not dependent on them. As Job says, he puts no trust in angelic beings. It's not as though he has to have them, but the pattern in the Scripture is that's what what he does. Well, let's look at some ways that he does that. There's the text. There's the promise. What do we find in the Bible? Now, we're going to start to build some patterns here. Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. Now, there's so much of this tonight, just like with this series, is what we can say. We speculate about a lot of the details, but it is interesting to note what's not said here. You know the context. Jealous Babylonians want to put Daniel out of business, get him off the team. God's not done with him yet. A lot more to go in his ministry and life. In verse number 19, after he gets thrown into the lion's den, the king comes back at the break of day. He arose. He went in haste to the den of lions. Of course, he was bound by the laws that he had made about throwing them in the den because of his prayer. And then it says in verse 20, He came near the den where Daniel was. He cries out in a a tone of anguish. And the king declared "Daniel, to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God, underline this, sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. I mean, he wouldn't sin. That's not why he was in in the lion's den. And also before you, O king, you know that. I've done you no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad. And he commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. Now, I'm going to put this with a question mark behind it. But I'm saying this it doesn't appear to be that Daniel's in the lion's den seeing angelic beings clasping the mouths of the lions. It is what he assumes to be happening in an unseen reality because it is a very unexpected outcome for lions not to eat the, you know, the Jewish boy in the, well, he's not a boy at this point, the Jewish man in the lion's den. Uh, It is undeniable deliverance that doesn't make sense. It's not it's it's not what you'd put the odds on, Daniel living through the night. The king was hoping that God would somehow do this, and Daniel's statement, which I'm assuming is something he did not see, it's something he concluded because of the unexpected odds of him surviving in the lion's den. He has an undeniable deliverance of God. He assumes the agency of angels. That's a pattern we're going to find throughout the Bible, and that is that you know, there's obviously exceptions to that, when something that is unlikely for our, in this case, physical protection takes place, the assumption of the godly man is, God dispatched his host to protect me from the harm. And I know some of us have gotten so far away from thinking that way, it almost seems uh, mystical for us to think that way. But here's Daniel saying, Hungry lions didn't eat me, what happened? God sent His angel to shut the lions' mouths. Acts 5, this one's a little weirder, but also I would believe something that from the perspective of those around, it was also an unseen kind of reality. Now, we'll look at this from a couple different angles, but there's a lot of comedy in this passage too we shouldn't miss, maybe not a lot of comedy, but there is certainly an ironic twist. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, the Sadducees, remember how I taught you to remember this, right? They don't believe in the, the resurrection. That's why they're Sadducees, right? Okay. The other thing they didn't believe in... They didn't believe in the afterlife, that's why they were always ragging on Christ about the whole, you know, you shouldn't be teaching this because how do these marriages work out if a guy's got all these wives that die? Remember the story, the wife has all the husbands die. The other thing they didn't believe in, and they were very clear on this, and it says it later in the book of Acts, it underscores, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits, they don't believe in angels. This was the liberal wing of the Jewish leadership. They didn't believe in those things. If I can't see it, I don't believe it. They were empiricists. They were rationalists. Though they were religionists, they didn't believe in, in, in angelic beings. It stated as such. That was their theology. So it's ironic that the Sadducees throw the apostles in prison, and look what happens in verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. Interesting phrase there capital L in the ESV, and I think rightly so. There's an interesting grammatical statement here that Christianity is life, which would be a great sermon theme to talk about. Verse 21, "...and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach." Right now, He put them in prisons that they wouldn't teach. They were jealous about the crowds that were following Him, and God sends them right back out, puts them in the middle of the most populous place in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount there, and they're preaching, and everybody's there listening." Uh, Now the high priest came, and those who were with him, the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels, and they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. They don't know what's happened yet. And when the officers came, verse 22, and did not find them in the prison, so they returned and they reported it. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed because from their observation this was an undetectable escape they didn't see it it was locked the guards were there they were perplexed and wondering what would this come what would this uh, come to how's this going to turn out verse 25 and someone came and told them look the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people here's a deliverance that was totally undetected by the people that know how to keep prisoners in prison with guards. And God uses an angelic being to do something, here's how I described it, that was an inexplicable escape. Don't know how it happened. Don't understand how they didn't see you. You should have seen the, these guys escape. And yet it was an undeniable deliverance. You don't get out of this jail. This is not a likely thing. Clearly, God intervened. How did He intervene? Through the agency of angelic beings to do some things in the physical world that shouldn't work. Locking or opening locked doors, getting past guards that should see you. You get past guards that should see you. The doors that should be locked are somehow unlocked. You get out, inexplicable escape, beyond, you know, the norm, and the people didn't see anything. There was no flash of lights. There was no winged cherubs coming down. This was just, you got out, shouldn't have got out. God's angelic messengers got it done. That, I think, is a pattern that's worth noting because there are things that we can connect with in our lives that seem out of the realm of what would be normal or expected or predictable, and yet God clearly did something providentially to do what was unlikely, uh, and we can see I think, rightly so, the pattern driving us to to perhaps conclude uh, God has invoked and engaged and enlisted angelic beings to help get it done. Number three, amid war. In the middle of war, we see angelic protection in the Bible on a couple of occasions, the most classic, which we have looked at, but it'd be worth looking at again, a little bit of history here that's fun to untangle, because when you read this in your annual Bible reading, you skim through it and kind of miss some of what's going on here. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. This is Elisha now, not Elijah. Elijah gets more Sunday school flammograph airtime, but Elisha gets more biblical airtime, more miracles, more interesting things happen in Elisha's life. King of Syria, verse 8. Let's start way up at verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Once when the king of Syria, which was Ben-Hadad at at that point, the first or second is debated uh, because it messes with the chronology of the Old Testament, we're not sure which, was warring against Israel. Uh, He took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place uh, shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, who was Joram at that point, be worth just for Sunday school's sake to throw up in our minds. You got 20 kings of the south, 20 kings of the north, got the the vision of the kingdom, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. You've got uh, nine dynasties in the, in the northern kings. This is the fourth dynasty, Omri's dynasty, Joram or Jehoram. It's spelled two different ways in the Bible. How many dynasties in the south, by the way? Right? There's only one. Why? Because David has to get to Christ, right? So David's line goes in the south. Joram's the king. So the king of this is the north. I just want to make that clear. This is not the south. One of the differences between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is that First and Second Kings bounces back and forth. It's harder to read between northern tribes and southern tribes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Samaria and Jerusalem, all of that. Chronicles only covers the southern kingdom, the line of David. Man of God sent word to uh, Joram, "Hey, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there." And the king of Israel sent to that place about which the man of God told him. Thus he, used to, thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. It kept happening. And the mind of the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, was greatly troubled because of this thing. I don't get it. What's going on? He calls his servants together and he says, uh, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Where's the traitor? Where's the, where's the mole, the snitch, right? There's, somebody's got to be telling these people this. They keep outsmarting us. And one of his servants said, none, O my lord, o, o, o king, but it's Elisha, the prophet, who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom, which no one hears and no one bugs, you know, your, your bedroom. And, and he said, go and see where he is that I may seize, send and seize him. Uh, and it was told, behold, he's in Dothan. Well, let's, let's get him then, verse 14. So he went there with horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night, total overkill, big army, didn't need it. Uh, to get one guy and his servant, right? And they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, he went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God knew, and Elisha knew, that God wasn't done with Elisha yet. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see so the Lord opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the young man, his servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. There it is, It's, 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 not, a, it's not a running theme, right? This, this is the fighting theme. The chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now I understand Elisha and Elijah, their ministries are peppered, much like Joshua and Moses, with miraculous events. Out of the less than 100 miraculous events that take place in the Bible, uh, somewhere around 90, uh, most of them occur between Joshua and Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Christ and the apostles. And here's a rash of miraculous things. So here is what you wouldn't normally get and that is a look behind the scenes given to his servant to see what's going on, which they wouldn't normally see, but it's happening all the time. And that is the underdog wins, and the underdog wins sometimes in ways that everybody says it's not possible. Now, there are miraculous wins that the army of Israel has, but oftentimes it's four Philistines against one Israelite. That's the ratio, and they end up winning. Why? Because we say God providentially help them win and help their sword go in the right place, help their slingshots hit the right target. Well, how does that work? According to this text, there is the agency of angelic beings that are involved. There is unseen protection. And in this case, it was miraculously and temporarily made visible, which just happens to be what we'd expect if you're hanging out with Elijah or Elisha, but doesn't happen if you're hanging out with me. Right? So what do you get it? What's the point? This is not something that's unique, that God sends protection. That's the promise of the Bible. The point is, you don't get to see it. And I'm not the miracle worker to show it to you. But we should just assume it to be so. And like everything that we don't see that is eternal, Paul said, we just ought to expect this is going on all the time, at least sent out to minister to those who will inherit salvation. If you're not a Christian, it doesn't apply. But if you are a Christian, You should expect this. Whenever there's visible deliverance. Do you see the pattern? Visible deliverance, I'm assuming God's pattern is to use the agency of angelic beings to get the deliverance done in warfare, in trial, in persecution, right? What was our first one? The promise. Okay, we've only had two. Persecution, warfare. Let me give you a fourth one, which is a third one because I've spent one point on the promise, amid temptation. Let's talk about that. This is worth looking at, too. It's Sunday school hour. All our old Sunday school stories coming back to us. This one's worth telling, too. There's so much comedy. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are some ironic things that happen in these Old Testament stories. Let's look at Numbers chapter 22 again. The punchline is verse 22, but let's get some context, at least read beyond that. Let's start in verse 21, amid temptation. Balaam, you may not say, "Wow, Balaam! God's concerned about his temptation." Yeah, God's going to use Balaam. Balaam, you remember, is is he's the spirit spiritual guru for hire? Let's just leave it at that. And so Balak, uh, he wants to hire him to go curse the Israelites. He's an enigma in some ways. How's this guy? Who is this guy? Where do you go to seminary? You got all these questions about Balaam, but here he is. And in verse 21, he rises in the morning, he saddles his donkey, he's going to go with the princes of Moab because he's basically on the take here as the spiritual guru for hire. You want me to curse him? Okay. And and a lot has happened before this. And it is an interesting story. The New Testament clarifies the motives. So we can read the motives in because the Bible clarifies the motives. But he's in it for money, he's in it for his own advantage, he's conflicted, but he ends up doing all this. Verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went. So what does God do? Well, God sends the angel of the Lord, so perhaps this was Christ himself, but because it's put in the terms of angelic beings, the halak of the Bible, we can use it as a pattern here of seeing how God supernaturally gets involved, in this case, spirit. This is the spirit, the spirit of Christ, we assume. He took his stand in the way of his adversary. That's a tough way to put it if you're Balaam, right? Because Balaam is now his adversary in in this story. Now, he was riding on the donkey, and uh, his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road. Now, this is weird. This is Dr. Doolittle. I mean, this is strange. You've got the, Balaam not seeing this, but a, somehow in this weird story, the donkey sees this, this, this roadblock, right? And the donkey turns aside out of the road, and he went into the field. It's like your car pulling off the road. It's like, what are you doing? And Balaam struck the donkey, to turn her to the road. Come on, there's a big paycheck at the end of this gig. Let's get there. And the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow of the path between the vineyards and the wall on on either side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and she pushed against the wall and she pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. Ouch! He's mad now. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she just said, I give up. And she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was just through the roof, kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. And the Lord, ready? Here comes Mr. Ed. And the Lord opened up the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And without flinching, right? Who was Mr. Who was Mr. Ed's guy? Um who? Wilbur just responds. Wilbur says to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had my sword in my hand, I would kill you. And the donkey says to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life, uh, life lifelong to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he's still unfazed. No. And the angel opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord. Now there again it is, a miraculous seeing of something that he wouldn't otherwise see because that's how these angelic beings work even how the pre-incarnate christ works not visible standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down with his face fell to his face verse 32 and the angel of the lord said to him why have you struck your donkey these three times behold i've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me which the new testament clarifies because he's on the take he's in it for the money And the donkey saw me and turned aside before these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. You want to kill your animal? I would have killed you. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Why? Because then you don't see angels. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. Now, this is the weird thing about the whole story in Numbers 22 uh, and 21 and 23 and on to the end of Numbers where there's a reprise of this theme. Um, The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, no, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. The Moabites wanted to hire him, and and God wanted to use Balaam in a particular way, but Balaam's motives kept getting mixed, and he wanted to do it for the money and the riches, which initially he said no, but the whole point was, no, I want you to go. I just don't want you to go for the reasons you're going, and so I'm stopping you, and now he says, fine, I'm going to tell you to go, but you're doing this for me, not for them. And, of course, he can't curse Israel. He ends up blessing Israel, which infuriates Balak, and on goes the story. What do we learn here? We learn there's unseen protection, which, again, I understand it's a miraculous text where God shows what's unseen, which is not the norm. And, if you're, you know, if you're there in, in redemptive history, God may do that. But us today in Orange County, probably not going to happen, right? The unseen protection is te- miraculously and temporarily made visible. And what you see is visible deliverance, at least for a time. Balaam turns back from wanting to make a buck on a spiritual gig, and he he gets his motives right. Temptation, warfare, persecution, whatever it might be, when you see visible deliverance, when there's protection from anything, you need to thank God. And you need to even perhaps imagine God in His economy may have used intermediaries, agencies, angels... To get that done. And we've all got stories of deliverance, do we not? Physical deliverance. And we might have to sit back one day from heaven's perspective and see things about that that we couldn't see now, but we understand that God's pattern is to protect His people, the people that will inherit salvation, and He protects us in a lot of ways where angelic beings get involved. Letter D. That was interesting. This is even more interesting. They are attending people at death. Hmm. Number one, they are chaperones for a person's spirit. At least, now again, this is a lot of speculation. All I can say is this has happened. That's why I worded this whole thing. This is how they've ministered. I'm assuming because Christ puts it this way without qualification, it is the norm. I assume it. Christ tells the story in Matthew 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. You don't need to turn there for the one line. I'll just read it. Verse 22, he says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. I've been to a ton of funerals and no one leaves if the them is the body. We're not the body. We live in a body. We are a spirit. We live in a body. When a story or explanation from Christ is told about someone leaving at death and the body stays clearly i mean that's just obvious christian theology that's what we believe we are software in hardware hardware stays software goes and this text says when the software goes at least this 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 description of Christ as he makes it the software the spirit is carried by the angels to its destination, his destination, her destination. That I can't say any more about because I have no other biblical data on it, but that's the example. So I'm assuming this, that when you die, I'm assuming this, uh, you will be now in their domain. Why? Because you've left the physical domain for a time. You're naked, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for a while. You're without your body. Now, in that realm, you meet up with some kind of chaperones, let's call them, to take you to wherever you're supposed to go. Uh, In that case, in that day, to hang out with Abraham. And perhaps he's where we're going to be, I trust, as well. Now, there's another interesting thing. We've already looked at this verse, but we should at least pull it back into our minds again. And if you're going to struggle with this, you may want to look at it. Jude chapter 9, there is an angelic concern for the body again this is i'm presuming i'm assuming some things i know at least in this case there was a concern for moses's body that's what i know i am assuming that i mean perhaps this was a unique case i don't know there is a concern of angelic beings for the deceased body. There are two parts to us. Both of them are important to God. Our body, our spirit. Spirit gets attended to by angelic beings. And at least in this text, when Moses died, Deuteronomy 34 tells us, this is interesting, that the Lord buried him. Jude 9, which is, I know if, you're, if you are well read, you know that this story is a reprise, a summary of something found in what we call the Old Testament pseudopigrapha which is a set of intertestamental writings done by Jewish folks retelling recasting the stories of the old testament and they take deuteronomy 34 at least they believe that they do we have most we have a lot of pseudepigraphs these stories in what's called the assumption of moses and the testament of moses we don't have this story that he got it from that We assume he gets it from that, because there's certainly enough of the existing documents, which there's not a lot. We have a few manuscripts of the of the assumption of Moses. But there's enough there to lead us to recreate the story of this text that Jude is referring to. Which because he's referring to it, apparently this has happened. And in verse number nine it says the Archangel Michael contended with the devil and was disputing about the body of Moses. Now his point is to say, even Michael didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment like the false teachers are going around doing, but he, they, they, but he said, Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. But that's the point he's making, but what he's referring to is an argument over the body of Moses. Now, you guys think I'm on a whole kick to, I don't know, to sell caskets or something. I'm not. But the trend that we've seen in our day to cremation, I do think we need to stop and say, what are we doing? Uh, And you've heard me go off on that before, some of you. I have no vested interest in this. I don't own a funeral home. I don't do embalming on the side. I'm just just looking at the text and as a pastor having to deal with people who who have loved ones die. And if God's going to bury a body, which Deuteronomy 34 says, and if the pattern in Scripture is burying a body, I just think we should safely stick with that. And even in this text, I know there's a concern about the body. They don't go, oh, he's gone, doesn't matter. The angelic being, in this case, the archangel Michael, is concerned about the internment of Moses' physical corpse. Okay? Why? Well, perhaps because we even see angelic beings involved at the resurrection. Now, again, all I can say is that these things are stated. I can't say this is the norm for the future, but I assume so, at least in this case, because it's a prophetic statement about the future. It does speak of Israel, but let's at least look at it and and think it through, at least to show the connection. At that time, Daniel 12, 1, that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, okay? Now, we're talking about future. We're talking about Michael. We're talking about his oversight of the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since the nation until that time, time of Jacob's trouble, it's called elsewhere. But at that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and come to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And if you want to grammatically in Hebrew chart out this passage, this all comes under this, this heading of the prince who has charge of your people shall arise. He's got some things here to do. He's going to deliver as the agency of God, and He is going to have some kind of oversight or involvement in the resurrection of the dead bodies reanimating coming back to life at the resurrection. Some now to life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel, okay, this isn't for this time, it's for the time of the end. But, You see angelic involvement, at least in Israel, at least Michael, over the resurrection of the Jewish saints, and that is a picture that at least makes me think, okay, there's involvement, At my death, separation of body and spirit, angelic involvement, escorting my spirit to wherever it needs to go, uh, some kind of concern for my body and its internment, and then some kind of oversight or involvement, or at least their presence and cheering, I don't know, of my reuniting of body and spirit. There's not a lot of data on that. I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm just going to say that's what we find in the Scripture as it relates to our future uh, there's, or at least it seems to be that some statements that lead us to believe uh, they're attending people at their death. So, I don't know, I put it this way since I started a pattern, we should be really thankful to God for His post-mortem provision in our lives. He's going to take care of us when we die, and He will utilize, it seems to appear to me, at least my educated guess is, He will utilize angelic beings to do all the post-mortem plan He has for mo- both in my life, body and and spirit the body decay absolutely i've had all those questions if you're new to this discussion you can go i think i've done blogs on this and everything so you can look that up or i can repeat it afterwards when you come up to talk to me about cremation let's end with a warning it's a good one though it's not a bad one don't become obsessed with angels even tonight there's enough for you to think wow they're present they're sent out to help me there's help in my life that I see. I want to connect the dots. I want to see them. I want to meet them. I want to talk to an angel. Let's get into angels. Don't become obsessed with angels. Here's one reason why, letter A, real quick, because infatuation with angels is a symptom of heresy in the Bible. I'll just read it for you, Colossians 2, 18 and 19. It says there are those who insist on asceticism, right? That's one group of people. And there are people that worship angels and then this is connected to that. They go into detail about visions. They're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, nourished and knit together the joints and ligaments that grow into the growth that is from God. The point is our focus is on Christ. Our obsession is not on angels. That should be our focus. Our focus is on Christ. Our obsession is not with angels. And it shouldn't be about trying to figure out visions and to go into details about what I think I dreamed last night. It may even be a vision. Maybe there was an angel trying to guide me into an evangelistic opportunity. Stop. Serve Christ. Read His Word. Focus on Him. Don't get infatuated with angels when you do. At least in Colossae, it was a symptom of heretical teaching and heretical thinking. Don't go there. Remember this. Whenever we do have them discuss their position with Christians in the Bible, we've quoted this one already, you don't need to turn to this one either. they're really quick to say, "Hey, I'm a fellow servant." right Revelation 22, eight and nine. John sees the angel, he falls down at his feet. The, God, the angel says, "You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. I'm like you. I serve him. I'm a fellow servant and your brothers, I'm just like your brothers, the prophets, just I'm, with, I'm, I'm in with in the fraternity of those who keep the words of the book, worship God, so they don't want us. Getting infatuated with them, they don't want us doing that. It's a sign of heresy. And then, lastly, interestingly enough, according to First Corinthians chapter six, we are going to have some kind of leadership over their lives, and that's a tough passage. But apparently, uh, in the chiding of the of the church at Corinth, why they couldn't solve their own disputes and they were litigating their civil matters with with the secular courts. He says, "Don't you know we're going to judge the world?" And then he says in verse three, "Don't you know we're going to judge angels one day?" Now, whatever that means. Perhaps in light of, of Ephesians, which says we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, we have a position, it's very unlikely, uh, that I mean, not unlikely, it's, it's unthinkable in our minds, but we are really positionally superior to angels. So don't get infatuated with them. In one sense, you need to get yourself in perspective as sons of the King, as redeemed human beings. We are in a privileged place that will outshine angelic beings in the next life. And I'm not saying to diss them. You ought to admire their work, respect them. They're certainly more powerful than we are. Uh, they got a lot of advantages to us. But in God's economy, uh, we're going to lead them. We're not going to be bowing down to worship them. So don't get obsessed with angels, okay, as we continue on in our angels series. Uh, but we're going to turn a corner this week and talk about the other side of the coin, lost angels, evil angels. We're done with the elect angels side of this.